You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to, uh, to ODI and also uh, welcome to the online viewers to this meeting on how to jumpstart developing economies. Um, I'm very pleased to, uh, uh, to say that uh, Justin Lin is here um, to discuss um, two books that he um, has co-authored. Um, and so one book is, um, is called Beating the Odds, Jumpstarting Developing Economies. And he's written that with um, uh, uh, Celestin Monga, who is now the chief economist at the African Development Bank. And the other book is Going Beyond Aid, Developing Development Cooperation for Structural Transformation. And um, I think that both of these books are, um, uh, are really, really interesting, uh, providing a sort of a new, fresh uh, narrative around uh, economic transformation and, and how to, um, to support it. Um, so Beating the Odds is, um, discusses how poor countries can master the art of performing economic miracles. Um, which is that despite the sort of poor preconditions, African country can still develop as long as they do the right thing. And so we're going to discuss a bit about what that is, what, it, what, it, what the right thing is. Um, and it isn't necessarily the answers that we thought were the case maybe 10 years ago, which was every country needs to have good governor, governance and all the right preconditions need to be um, in, in place, uh, right? Uh, like... Um, uh, infrastructure needs to be in place or everything. It's, it's actually that every country can, uh, can do it, uh, can start from where it is um, and develop and can grow. Um, and it's very much about uh, engaging in a process of structural transformation. And that's what we're going to talk about a lot, I, uh, I think. It's about uh, overcoming market and, go and, and, and gov government failures, engaging in the process of technological upgrading, and it's about strategic industrial policies. Um, and uh, this book about beating the odds has a, a strong narrative around uh, supporting uh, specialized economic zones, for example. And it's also about um, a, a pragmatic approach to, um, uh, to, to development. Um, for example, the, the strong emphasis on, on ch uh, in China on developing special economic zones. Actually, uh, as the book explains, comes from uh, thinking around uh, what had happened in, in Ireland and in Singapore. Um, in the book Going Beyond Aid, uh, Justin Ling uh, and his co-author um, discuss a number of challenges with the tra traditional aid approach and suggest a number of ways in which um, China's experience offers some of the answers. Um, so there are sort of mismatches between the traditional donor interests and recipient interests. Um, there wasn't the focus on structural transformation. Um, and also the sort of the older, the older definition of uh, definition of aid uh, is, is, is uh, seem to be quite uh, quite narrow. So we're going to talk a lot uh, around also what uh, what Justin thinks is the right approach to supporting the efforts of developing countries to transform their their economies. Uh, the discussant is uh, Melinda Bohannon, and she is the deputy director uh, for growth and resilience at the Department for International Development. And under her, her watch, um, DFID. Um, developed the first ever economic development strategy 
um, that was launched in, in January. We'll hear more on that. And, um, and what, I've, uh, what I think is the case is that it does take some of these things into account, actually, which, which, which is a useful step um, going, uh, going forward. Now, our program, uh, the program that I, that I, that I lead, um, uh, called Supporting Economic Transformation, is also working on these issues. Um, and um, uh, so we have uh, just come back from, um, uh, from Kenya, for example, thinking around uh, economic transformation in Kenya, industrialization. And I was also able to, um, uh, to, uh, to visit the work that uh, TMEA, Trademark is the Africa, was, were doing, uh, funded by the Department for International Development, uh, around the work in the port, for example, and, and how the, the increased efficiencies in the port, but also um, the work that they're, they're thinking of around special economic zones, in, and including the work that, that China has been doing in, uh, in, in, in Kenya, uh, around, for example, the railways, uh, also thinking about special economic zones. All those things together um, are actually sort of examples of, of how, uh, how support can, can uh, outside support can help uh, countries transform their, their economies. Um, and, and there are some f fascinating uh, achievements that, that, that uh, for example, the Trademark East Africa has been able to contribute to a reduction in in transit times uh, from the port of Mombasa in Kenya to Uganda from 18 days to five days. So it's much more efficient now to, uh, to transport goods. Okay, so um, um, this meeting will be on the record and um, the question and answers can also come through the iPad as well. And so uh, I'd like now to introduce uh, Justin Lin. So he's the former chief economist uh, at the World Bank. He's uh, director at the Center for New Structural uh, economics. He's a dean of the Institute of South-South Cooperation and Development and the honorary, honorary dean at the National School of Development at Peking University. Uh, he's also um, uh, on the advisory group of the Supporting Economic Transformation Program. Um, so over to you to discuss um, these uh, fine books. These are excellent books. Thank you. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming to the seminar for my two books. And uh, I want to start with why we should go beyond traditional aid and uh, constitutional bargaining. And then I'd like to provide a theoretical foundation for the rethinking for my argument. Then look into the new sources for development financing mostly from China and other you know, BRIC country. Then I'd like to discuss the window of opportunities to capture the ways for structural transformation industrialization in a very pragmatic way, which I discuss in the book, Between the Arts. Then a short concluding remarks. You know, among nearly 200 developing countries that emerged after the Second World War. Certainly, all the developing countries, they have the aspiration to be industrialized, to catch up high-income countries. But so far, the performance is quite you know, disappointing because among the 200 developing economies, you know, at, the term, at the time, the post-World War II, but so far, only two moved from low income to high income. One was Korea, the other one was Taiwan, China. 
And the mainland China likely to be the third one by the time of 2025 to move from low income to high income. And in 1960s, there were 101 developing and middle income economies. By the time of 2008, only 13 moved up to the high income. And among those 13, eight were European countries surrounding Western Europe. Their income gap was small to begin with, or oil producing country. The other five were Japan and four small East Asian you know, tigers. So that means that in spite of broader effort, most developing country has been trapped in low income status or middle income status. And uh, so how to improve this situation to help the low income country to grow, to create jobs, would be essential for achieving the SDG by the time of 2030. And uh, the nature of modern economic growth is not so hard to understand. Certainly, the modern economic growth appear after the Industrial Revolution. And uh, some countries, their income increased dramatically after that. And the possibility for that was because there was a continuous structural transformation in terms of technological innovation and industrial upgrading, which raised labor productivity. So it's possible to increase the income. But at the same time also, a process of continuous structural transformation in terms of hard infrastructure as well as soft institution, which reduce the transaction cost. That is the structural transformation that accompanies the possibility to raise income in the modern times. And the reason why most developing countries, they could not have a substantial increase their income was because of they don't have this type of structural transformation. Because if you go to a poor country in Africa or in other parts of the world, you can see they still rely mainly on agricultural or natural resources for their livings. And that was the reason why they cannot get out this kind of poverty trap. And a developing country, if that is very important for the income growth, developing countries certainly should have some kind of advantages. That is so-called advantage of backwardness or latecomer advantages. Because in the process of technological innovation, industrial upgrading, improving of institution, they can learn, they can imitate, they can license from the high income country for those technology or industry or institutional changes. So theoretically, they should grow faster than the high-income country and uh, achieve the conversion to the high-income country. However, most developing countries failed to tap into the potential and to solve the issue of poverty. And the results should be puzzling because the possibility is there. But most of them were not benefited from the possibility. And certainly, we would like to see how come most of countries fail, but we do have a few economies that were successful. And there are any lessons that we can learn? So that is the work of the Growth Commission. They look into certain economies after the Second World War, achieve 
uh, the growth rate of 7% per year or more continuously for 25 years or more. And we know that high-income country, on the average, their growth rate was about 3%. So if a developing country can grow at 7% or more for 25 or more years, certainly they can catch up, they can narrow the income gap. And among these 13 economies, there are five status facts. They are all open economy. Secondly, they all achieve macro stability. And they also have high rates of saving and investment. And, the, and then they also uh, market economy or transit toward a market economy. And then they have proactive government. Those are five status effects for the successful economies. And uh, this is a report headed by the Michael Spence. And when he released this report, certainly he gave you know, seminars in many places and met with you know, national leaders in the developing world. And when people ask him, is there a recipe for success? His response was, well, those five status facts are ingredients for success, but they are not recipe for success. But we know that if there's no recipe for success, then it's very hard for the developing country to design their policy in order to achieve that success, right? So there are some way we still need to you know, go further in order to find a way which we can give some kind of pragmatic advice to the developing country so they can change their path of growth and towards a new direction for their futures. And uh, in the process of the catching up and so on, or structural transformation, investment is very important because no matter technological innovation, industrial upgrading, or improvement in the infrastructure, which are the essential you know, components of the structural transformation, all require investment. And after the Second World War, there were many multilateral and bilateral development you know, institutions like the World Bank or Regional Development Bank, those are multilateral, or bilateral development institutions like DFID. They provide funding to support the developing world. And since investment is important, so if they have more funding, theoretically, they should be able to contribute to their structural transformation in terms of technological innovation, industrial grading, improvement of the infrastructure. But so far, the results show the performance of the developing world are still far away from what we you know, hope to achieve. And so is there a way to improve the development assistance so they can have more resources and achieve their goal of modernization, industrialization, and reducing poverty? And uh, we have so much effort, but we did not achieve the goal. Why? And for that, I think uh, Keynes is right. It is ideas, not wasted interest, which are dangerous for good or evil. The reason why we put so much effort, but so far we are not able to achieve the goal, I think because of most people's effort are guided by ideas. And if the ideas are not appropriate, even you have a lot of effort, then you cannot achieve the goal. And what are the ideas that we have to guide the development effort in the developing country as well as the you know, 
multilateral development institution. For that, we need to look into the you know, prevailing or the mainstream development ideals. And then we know that development economics is a new subdiscipline of modern economics, which emerged after the Second World War to guide the development effort in a developing country when they gained political independence. And the first addition of development economics is structuralism. At that time, the idea was to advise the developing country to build up large-scale modern industries in order to you know, raise their productivity and to catch up. And uh, at that time, the perception of the developing country, they could not have this kind of modern industry was because of market values. And so the advice was for the developing country to you know, mobilize the resources directed by the state in order to build up the large-scale modern industries in a strategic called impulse substitution strategies. And I think the, you know, the, 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 the intention was good, but the result was poor. Very often, after those kind of projects were built up, they became well elevent, and the economy started to be stagnant and hit by crises all the time. And so by the time of the late 1970s, 1980s, the perception about the reason why the developing country did not do well was because they did not have modern market, well-functioning market institution as in a high-income country. And the idea was the neoliberalism and the policy prescription was to you know, implement the marketization, privatization, stabilization simultaneously in order to build up the well-functioning market institution in the developing world to overcome the government failures. And again, the aspiration, the intention was good, but the result was poor because after implement this kind of Washington consensus reform, most developing countries, their economy you know, declined sharply, and then stagnant, hit by crises, and the average annual growth rate in the developing country was actually lower than the average annual growth rate in the 1960s, 1970s. And the frequencies of the crisis were even higher compared to the previous period. During this period of time, there were a few successful economies. First was the East Asian economies, as I mentioned, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Japan. In the 1950s, 1960, they grew very dynamically and they became newly industrialized you know, economies. And then if you look into their approach, their approach did not follow the main ideas in the 1950s, 1960s. Instead of trying to build up large-scale modern industries in order to cross the gap with high-income country, they started with traditional, small-scale, labor-intensive industries. At that time, this approach was considered as a wrong approach, and, but they were successful. And in the 1980s, 1990s, during the period of you know, transition, a few economies were successful, like China, Vietnam, Laos, and actually Mauritius in Africa in the 1970s. They all adopted an approach for the transition from the government-led growth to the market-oriented economies by some kind of gradual P 
piecemeal dual track approach. Instead of the structural RP advocated by the Washington Consensus. And at that time, those kind of dual track piecemeal approach was considered as the worst possible approach. But so, but up to now, they were the only group of economy which achieved stability and dynamic economic growth during the period of transition. And they all have, so, so from this result we can see, country follow the mainstream ideals. Certainly the intention was good, and uh, the argument seemed to be convincing, but the result were poor. And a few countries, a few economies, they were successful, but they adopted an approach which were considered as wrong approach, according to the prevailing main ideas in the global development community. So that's, we need to have a rethinking. And uh, I propose a way of new thinking called, rethinking called the new structural economics. In the new structural economics, I advocate the use of neoclassic approach to study the nature of modern economic development. The nature of modern economic development, as I just described, it was a process of continuous technological innovation, structure transformation, in terms of industrial structure, hard infrastructure and institution. And I'd like to use neoclassic approach to study the determinants of this kind of structural transformation, as well as the impact of this kind of structural transformation. By convention, I should refer this type of approach as structural economics. Because if we apply neoclassic approach to study agriculture, then we refer that as agricultural economics. To study finance, then we refer that as financial economics. Then I applied neoclassic approach to study structural and structural transformation. I should refer this type of study as structural economics. But how come I put a new there? Because there was structuralism in the 1950s, 1960s. And to distinguish my approach from structuralism, I refer my approach as new structural economics. Just like Douglas knows, in the 1960s, he started to advocate the use of neoclassical approach to study institution and institutional transformation. Then he should refer his approach as institutional economics. But there was an institutional school in the US as turn of the 20th century. So to distinguish his approach from the institutional school, he referred his approach, new institutional economics. So that's the, in the same spirit. Then what is the main idea of the new structural economics? My main hypothesis is that economic structure, both technology, industry, hard infrastructure, and institutions are endogenous. Endogenous to what? Endogenous to the endowment structure in a country at any specific time. We know that what we refer industry uh, endowments are capital, labor, and natural resources. And they are given at any country at any given time, but they are changeable over time. And the endowments are actually the total, total budget of a country at any specific time. And for a country at different stage of development, certainly the relative abundance of their endowments will be different. High income country, they are relatively abundant in capital. And a developing country, they are relatively, relatively abundant in either labor force or natural resources. 
And this kind of relative abundance certainly will determine the relative factor cost of production. And uh, this kind of relative abundance will determine the competitive advantages of a country at any specific time. If your industries and technology are consistent with your competitive advantages determined by your factor endowments, your factor cost of production will be lowest. And uh, if your factor cost of production is lowest, then those kind of industrial structure should be considered as the optimal industrial structure in the economy. Certainly, what we concern is not a static allocation of resources. What we concern is a dynamic economic growth in income and which should be supported by dynamic changes in the structure. And if we want to reach high income, certainly we need to have a high level of productivity. And if we want to have high level of productivity, certainly we need to have a more capital intensive type of technology and industries. But since the technology and industry are endogenous to the endowment structure, so if you want to move up to more capital intensive industry, then you should increase your availability of capital for workers in order to make that happen. And if you can have more, fact, more capital to every workers, you can move up to the more capital intensive industry. But certainly, you also need to simultaneously improve the hard infrastructure and institution to reduce transaction costs. That's the ideas behind the new structural economics. And so when we say a country is trapped in low-income status or trapped in the middle-income status, that means what? They cannot have a dynamic structural transformation to raise their available productivity higher than the high-income country. Then they will be trapped in the low-income or in the middle-income status for a long time. So the income trap actually reflects the inability to have a dynamic structural transformation. But how do you make that happen? How do you make the dynamic economic growth happen? Well, since the industrial structure is a reflection of your endowment structure, and if you want to move up to the income ladders, you need to improve your labor productivity. But if you want to improve your labor productivities, you need to make the capital more available. And how to make the capital more available? And the idea from the simple analysis of the new structural economics is to follow your competitive advantages. Determined by your endowment structure would be the best way. Because if you follow your competitive advantages, your federal cost of production will be lowest. And uh, with adequate hot and soft institutions, then you will be most competitive. If you are most competitive, you can generate the largest possible you know, profit or economic surplus, and you can have more to save. And also, it's easy to, to, to prove. If, you, if your investment is consistent with your comparative advantages, the return to capital will be the largest. And under that kind of situation, you have more to save, and you have, more, you have the highest incentive to save, certainly your capital will increase the fastest way. And once your capital increase, then you can upgrade your industry and technology. And for a developing country, in, the pro in this process, they can benefit from the advantage of backwarners. They can grow faster than a high-income country. And uh, to follow the competitive advantages is a way to choose your technology and industry. It's a concept understandable 
only to economists. How to make that a spontaneous behavior of the entrepreneur? Then you need to have an institution. Not the institution <coughs> that your relative factor prices should reflect your relative abundances of factor endowments. And the only way to get those kind of prices is through the competitive market. So if you want to follow your competitive advantages, the precondition is to have a competitive market. And if market is so important, does the state play some role? Actually, the state is also very important because economic development is not a process of static allocation of resources. It's a process of continuous you know, improvement in technology, upgrading industry, as well as improvement in hard infrastructure and institution. And in this process, you need to have the first mover. And you need to compensate for the externality created by the first mover. But you also need to coordinate the changes in infrastructure and institution in order to reduce transaction cost to make the industry can be competitive. And only state can compensate for the externality and provide the coordination in the improvement of high infrastructure and institution. So that means what? You also need to have a facilitation state to make that happen. And the development assistance will be conducive to the development success. If it increase a facilitation states, resources, and a capability to support structural transformation. That is the key to make a development assistance to be effective. <coughs> and uh, I mentioned that <coughs> Michael Spence, when he launched his report, he often said there was no recipe for success. You have ingredients for success, but there are no recipe for success. But from the new structural economics point of view, there's a recipe for development success. That is to follow your competitive advantages in the <coughs> structural transformation process. <coughs> but if you want to follow the comparative advantages, you need to have two preconditions. One is market economy in order to provide the right price signals. And the second one is to have a facilitation state in order to overcome the issue of externality and also coordination. And those are the condition number four and five in the Gross Commission reports status facts. And if you follow your compare advantages, certainly you will be an open economy. You produce whatever you're good at and export that. And you import whatever you're not good at. And that will be an open economy. So that is the condition number one of the status facts. And if you follow your compare advantages, you will be most competitive. So you are not going to you are going to, you know, as uh, uh, strong as the possible economy. You are not, you are unlikely to have a homegrown crisis. And if you are hit by external shocks, you will be in the best position to have counter-cyclic intervention. So under that kind of situation, certainly you are going to have more, better performance in macro stability. That's condition number two. And also, if you follow your compare advantages, I already argue, you are going to have largest possible accumulation of capital because you are going to have you know, more profit, more revenue, the more to save, and certainly you will also have the highest incentive to save. So that's the condition number three. So in fact, there's a recipe for development success. That is to follow the competitive advantages 
in the process of structural transformation. And from this, we can also understand how come the previous ideas of development did not work. For example, structuralism. The intention was good to help the country to have a structural transformation in order to develop modern, large-scale industries. But the issue is that they went against the competitive advantage of a developing country. Large-scale, modern industry was very capital-intensive. But a developing country in the early stage, they are poor agrarian economies. So they did not have the competitive advantage in those kind of modern sectors. And uh, as a result, firms in those kind of advanced sectors were not viable in an open competitive market unless the government gave subsidies and protection to those non-viable firms. Otherwise, those kind of industries cannot exist. So in fact, the so-called market value as described by the structuralism was not a market value at all. It was because of those kind of sectors went against their competitive advantages, and a firm could not survive without protection and subsidies. And without government protection and subsidies, certainly you will not see the firm enters into those kind of sectors. And, uh, and, but under the guidance of structuralism, under the guidance of structuralism, the government would have to you know, provide subsidies and protections. And those kind of subsidy protection in general is carried out, uh, were carried out in the way of all kind of government intervention and restoration. And the intervention and restoration create rent and rent shaking. So you are going to have the misallocation of resources as well as the corruption, all those kind of issues. And also development assistance in the 1950s, 1960s did not work because at the time, development assistance were used as a way to support the developing country to realize those kind of ambitious goal, to build up large-scale modern industry, but most of them became white element. So you spend a lot of money, it did not work. And then how come Washington consensus also failed? Well, Washington consensus did not recognize a lot of distortions in the past were indigenous to the need of protection, those kind of large-scale large modern energies. And so if we remove all the distortions simultaneously, what would happen? Those kind of industries would go bankrupt, create a huge number of unemployment and social political instabilities. Under the kind of situation, certainly you cannot grow your economy. <coughs> and the development assistance at that time did not work. Was because the development assistance at that time were used to support the developing country to carry out the so-called structural adjustment to help the government at that time to you know, remove all those kind of distortion in order to build up a well-functioning market economy. But they did not recognize if you did not have those kind of support to the older sectors, they are going to have the issue of bankrupt and uh, social political instability. So that's the reason why it did not work. And also, the Washington consensus did not work because they opposed the government to use proactive you know, intervention support for the structural transformation in terms of compensated for the first movers in terms of the necessary coordination in the improvement of you know, the, the infrastructure and so on. And this can also say how come the, 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 the dual track piecemeal approach 
perform better because they are more pragmatic. They provide transitory protection and subsidy to the old sector to maintain stabilities. But the government actively facilitation the entry to the new sectors by improving the infrastructure institution in a pragmatic way. And so they can achieve stability and dynamic growth simultaneously. Well, with these kind of ideas, we look you know, beyond the horizon to the future. In the future, we need to understand the world changed a lot. Now, with China and uh, the BRIC country, they contribute more to the world in terms of development, in terms of saving, in terms of investment. Like before the, uh, before the 1990s, the saving in the developing country and the saving in the high-income country was about the same. But now, the developing country, they contribute much more to the global savings, and especially China. And in terms of investment in the world, before 2000, 80% of the investment in the world came from the high-income country. But by the time of 2030, likely 70% of the investment will be coming from the developing country. High-income country will contribute only 30% of the global investment. And certainly China standing out, because China now the second largest economy in a, in a contribute to about 30% of global growth every year, and China saving is about 50% of GDP, so China can contribute more. And with this kind of ideas, in the past, the development assistance were on the one hand used in the wrong areas. And the second is so far, the ODA, the Overseas Development Assistance, according to the DEC, the Development Assistance Commission, is too narrow. They only look at the concessional loan, concessional grant. But if you try to promote development, any fund that are used to support structural transformation, both investment in infrastructure, investment in industries, as long as they improve productivities, they improve the job, they create a job, then they will contribute to the goal of development. So we need to expand the you know, definition of development cooperation instead of focus only on concessional fund. And, and, and also, if we compare the development assistance in the past and the development assistance in the future, in the past, mostly come from the high-income country. And as I mentioned, they are focused on land-defined activities. And also, this fund carry with the ideas in the developed country, like to improve the market institution or to build up the same industry as in the high-income country. And also, they untie from trade and comparative advantages. In the future, more and more funds will come in from the developing country like China, India, and others. They will combine aids, trade, and public and private investment. And secondly, they will carry with their ideas of development based on their experiences. And they will combine more with the trade. And I think this may be more effective in promoting structural transformation in the developing world. And I follow these ideas. The developing country may have a good opportunity to have a structural transformation. Because if you look after the Second World War, a few successful countries were economy to transform from an agrarian economy to modern industrialized economy. In general, 
they capture one window of opportunity. That is a global relocation of labor-intensive military from high-income country to low-income country due to the change of comparative advantages in high-income country. And Japan, then the first military against, then mainland China in the 1980s, a good example of that. And, uh, and, uh, and follow these ideals, China currently, with a per capita income of you know, close to 9,000 US dollars, China lost comparative advantage in labor-intensive manufacturing. And China will release huge opportunity for that because China is such a large country, and the labor-intensive industry in China, you know, currently employ about 85 million workers. And those kind of jobs will be relocated to other developing countries within 10 years. But how to capture that opportunity? That is my sec the book, Beating the Arts. You need to be pragmatic. Developing country today, certainly, they don't have good infrastructure. They don't have good institution. Their business environment may be poor. Traditionally, the idea was to improve the infrastructure for the whole nation, improve business environment for the whole nation, and improve the institution for the whole nation. Then, things will happen spontaneously. But first, in the past, it, it did not it, it did not you know, bring that result. And secondly, developing country cannot wait. So under this, if the government use a pragmatic way you know, to improve infrastructure, this environment, to have proactive investment promotion, then even a country with very poor infrastructure and institution, a country can jumpstart their industrialization. And one good example is Ethiopia. You know, when I started to promote this idea, no one really believed that Ethiopia, another country with very poor infrastructure and institution, can be the manufacturing floor for the global market. But if you come to Africa today, they are the most dynamically growing country in terms of industrialization, in terms of attracting foreign direct investment, and in terms of job expansion in the manufacturing sectors. And not only in Rwanda, uh, in Ethiopia. Rwanda is another example. If you use this kind of very pragmatic approach to create enclave, like a spatial economic zone and industrial parks, within a zone you have good enough infrastructure and uh, to make business simple by one-stop services and a proactive investment promotion. Even a land country like Rwanda can be the manufacturing flow for the global market to capture this opportunity of the structural transformation and creating job, completing the transformation from agrarian economy to modern industrial economy. And if the global development assistance are using to support this kind of pragmatic approach, then the job released from China will be sufficient to help African countries and many other developing countries to complete their structural transformation and closing the gap with a developed country. Thank you very much. Good. Thank you very much. It's been really, really helpful. Great, great lecture. Um, and also some practical uh, examples at the end. And I think we'll probably want to talk a little bit more on, on those practical examples of, 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 your, uh, of your theoretical framework. Um, but before we do that, um, let me just pass the microphone to uh, Melinda for her comments. Thank you very much, Dirk, and thank you, Professor Lin. That was fascinating and insightful. And I'm going to just spend a few minutes um, doing three things. 
firstly, talking about why we agree with Professor Lin's central proposition, particularly around the narrative of going beyond aid, um, and also this important focus on structural transformation as the route to sustained growth. Um, secondly, I'm going to talk about what DFID is doing about it um, in practical terms as um, a bilateral development agency and as part of HMG. And thirdly, and by way of introducing a discussion, I hope, um, I'm going to talk about some of the challenges that we face as a bilateral donor that we've, that we've found so far on our journey to support, um, uh, to support structural transformation. So um, the first point then, why we agree, I, mean, I think there are three key points as to why we agree with Professor Lin's central thesis about the importance of structural transformation as the route to um, sustained exit from poverty and sustained growth. The first is unequivocally, as Professor Lin alluded to, the evidence points to it. Um, he spoke about the Michael Spence Growth Commission and the work around that, which showed that in order to eradicate poverty, what we really need is high and sustained levels of growth um, in order to raise incomes, in order to solve the poverty trap, in order to help countries get on that path to um, higher productivity and to higher growth. So clearly the, the evidence is unequivocal there. The second reason is that I think particularly from DFID's point of view, we find that to achieve that objective, conventional approaches don't work as well as they really need to. And by conventional approaches, what I mean there is, um, you know, the traditional approach to things like enabling environment reform, legal, le legislative reform, um, technical assistance, um, market-focused mar M4P-type approaches, although each in turn make perfect sense in terms of the broader context, as a set of um, ingredients, they don't really establish that transformational shift that you need in order for economies and governments to think coherently about what is it going to take to help our country move itself onto that high and sustained growth path. So the conventional tools that DFID has used in, in the past in particular, we haven't found has really solved that problem. Um, and the third, and this is very personal to me as someone who is involved in the post-2015 or the, the post-2015 development agenda or the SDGs as they're now called, um, was the very powerful, uniquely powerful voice of the low-income countries arguing for just this. You know, this wasn't a narrative about, exclusively about finishing the job on the MDGs. This was very powerfully a narrative about the importance that they attached over the next 15 years to industrialization, to structural transformation, and their asks of the international community to support them on that journey around infrastructure, urbanization, cities, technology transfer, energy, all the key ingredients for growth that they wanted to see. And it wasn't only an aid story either. Uh, colleagues in the room who work with me closely on this will remember the importance they attach to a modern development finance landscape in that regard. So those are the reasons I think we agree with Professor Lin about the importance of, of structural transformation. In terms of what Wadifid is doing about it, and I think the point to make here is that we are increasingly convinced that smart industrial policy um, with a focus on building high-value sectors is the place to focus. And by smart, what we mean there is a broad and coherent emphasis to unlocking the binding constraints to growth and productivity, whether this be at the level of infrastructure or urbanization or skills and labor market development or the financial sector. It's clear that all those key ingredients need to be considered together in a way that's tailored to context. And we're also increasingly, well, we've always been convinced, but it's worth re-emphasizing the important role of FDI and the tradable sector 
um, as where some of those productivity leaps are most likely to take place. So in terms of what DFID is practically doing about it then, the economic development strategy that we published early this year is um, our way of pulling together a consolidated narrative and statement of intent about how we will focus going forward on supporting transformational growth. And there are really three, three key elements to that. The first is the diagnostics tool that we've used in DFID to help us work through the country program lens and the, the country relationship with government um, lens and partnerships to really get to the bottom of what are the binding constraints to growth, both at the sector level but also the institutional level, and build on that to have a bottom-up story for what are the things that we should be prioritising. The second key element of our strategy are new programmes. So we've brought forward a range of um, large new programmes centrally in Whitehall but that we're working on jointly with many country offices that really focus on tackling some of these binding constraints specifically. Um, and just to mention a handful of those, we are working closely with a colleague of Professor Lynn's, actually Helen High, on an Invest Africa program, which is specifically about looking at ways to bring the support the manufacturing base in sub-Saharan Africa, but also thinking more coherently about how that forms part of industrial policy with the governments that we're working with. Other programs include urbanization in cities and infrastructure, um, financial sector deepening, um, commercial agriculture and productivity in the agriculture sector. And of course this builds on a range of programs that DFID already has at country level with a view to providing some sort of, well, providing greater coherence to those as a collective and thinking about how we can work together on a coherent results envelope across all of those sectors. Um, alongside this, we continue to work on those traditional tools I was talking about, so the enabling environment reform, regulatory reform, um, we have a new programme, a new body of work now on domestic resource mobilisation and tax policy in particular. And of course, there is a critical role for evidence in all of this. So many of you will be familiar with um, the International Growth Centre that we support at the London School of Economics and also support to economic transformation that we work on with Dirk at ODI. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely clear that the evidence on this... It's, it's not a done deal. We need to continue researching. We need to continue looking at the key elements. We need to continue thinking, forward thinking, and providing forward thinking, policy-focused, cutting-edge research to governments to help them really establish that smart industrial policy that I was talking about. So that's what we're doing about it. I think the third element, and by way of segueing into a discussion then, is some of the practical things, some of the practical challenges um, that we find as a bilateral development agency um, as we go forward and try and establish our name in this area, if you will, but really practically do something about it in a way that's going to, um, well, impact lives, essentially, but also not fall foul quickly to the complex political economies in the countries in which we work. So three, and I'm sure that you have many, but I'll just throw three out there. I think the first is um, what's very clear is that many of these countries already are undergoing some sort of transformation, but it's not the sort of transformation that Professor Lim was speaking about. It's more of a service sector-based transformation. And I'm sure many of you will have seen and read the article in The Economist a couple of weeks ago about why Africa's development model puzzles economists, which spoke specifically to this point. Um, now, what's clear is that the job creation momentum won't be built and sustained in that sector, and particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, the job creation challenge is huge in order to absorb the number of, of unemployed youth that um, demographic projections predict, predict are going to um, exist over the coming years. 
But what's also clear is that we can't ignore it, and I think this speaks to Professor Lin's point about the importance of being tailored to context, because we need to find a way of building on that dynamism and that productivity and that structural shift that's already happening. Um, whether that's part of the urbanization phenomenon where it's particularly concentrated or more broadly as part of a smart industrial policy. And there's a real question as to how we do that successfully, I think. The second challenge, um, which we certainly feel very strongly as a government, um, as a bilateral agency and as a government who've committed to the leave no one behind principle of the, of the SDGs, is how do we do this in a way um, that stimulates growth paths that are equitable and where the benefits flow widely across economies where inequality is already high. I think we're acutely conscious of the risk of reinforcing rent-seeking, in particular with some of the firms in which we, um, which we talk about working with. Um, I think we're also very conscious of um, the, the risk of consolidating sector dominance and, the, and the, the push and pull between opening up sectors and reinforcing elite interests within those sectors is something that I think we, we still need to work on very carefully um, as part of our programme approach. And the, um, the ICAR review recently on DFID's approach to the inclusive growth diagnostics picked up our work on governance as something that we need to focus on much more strongly going forward. Um, and then the third challenge, I think, is you know, a country's optimal growth path is, growth path is ultimately something which requires political vision and patience um, and that strong commitment to tackle elite and vested interests and open sectors up to competition as Professor Lim was talking about and I think there is a unique challenge there around how we support um, wide political census for what is effectively a long-term structural process in a way that creates consensus right across society um, in a way that really builds momentum behind structural reforms. So those are my three main challenges. The fourth one, I know this is um, uh, contested, but my, my question to you is, are we running out of time? Because the window for opportunity for countries to follow this sort of growth path is rapidly closing, say some, say many. And certainly the onset of automation in many of the industries that we're speaking about is increasingly a sort of undercurrent to this narrative around the importance of structural transformation. Um, so what strategies can industrial policy adopt to address this in a way that helps us really think about where the industries we're talking about are going to be in five, ten years' time. So those are my challenges. Thank you again, and I look forward to a good discussion. Thank you, Melinda. That's been very helpful as well. Um, before we go to the audience, maybe just wanted to pick up on, on these two some of these challenges. Um, which, which is also, so the last two maybe, sort of about the political vision that, that's needed. So you, you've explained um, uh, in eloquent terms the, the approach, the new structural economics approach, and then you've um, uh, put it into practice and you've supported the, the government of Ethiopia, you've supported the government of Rwanda. Um, you're also, I know you've done work in Nigeria and I think you mentioned Benin. Um, and uh, I think well, the book, maybe it's more Celestine that talked about it, but Tanzania has, has come up with many of the strategies that are there. Um, so, so what are the sort of the challenges that you see? So I think, I mean, you, you're very positive about it, that every country can, can achieve it. Do you feel that, that, um, that some countries are grasping uh, the wind of opportunity, uh, whilst others aren't? And what then do you do if they don't grasp it? I think that... Um one of the main challenges is that to have a vision and a keep focus because 
And uh, a country certainly they faces all kind of challenges, and also had advice from all different, you know, directions. And under that kind of situation, you know, to make this idea works, it's very important to have quick wins. Once you have quick wins, it's easier to mobilize the consensus in the country. But to have a quick wins, it's very important to have a leadership. The head of state should be convinced and uh, should be ready to be behind the new directional changes. Because although, you know, to create a special economic zone and uh, to have one-stop services and to have incentive packages to attract foreign direct investment as a jumping pad for, you know, utilize the domestic comparative advantages and to reach global market and as a demonstration for the local firm to follow. The idea is not so hard to understand. But if you go to a country, they have the bureaucrats and they follow the oral practices. And if you want to make those kind of changes, the bureaucrats, they may not fully understand. And they will still behave in a traditional way of doing business. And under the kind of situation, you know, those kind of programs will be there and did not have any work. One example, we know that increasingly now many governments, they understand it's impossible to improve the infrastructure for the whole nation. But it's so special economic zone would be a good way to create enclave for you know, this kind of structural transformation. But if you go to the developing country, including those in Africa, you find most of special economic zone do not work, does not work, uh, do not work. And the main reason is that although they have the vision, but they don't put infrastructure in a special economic zone. It's just a name. Okay, in some cases, they put infrastructure in the special economic zone, but they put that in a wrong, wrong location, very often in the hometown of the national leaders, but they, have, they do not have any economic justification. Well, they also put the special economic zone in uh, right location and with, with sufficient infrastructure, but sometimes they are too ambitious. They want to attract high-tech industry, but they don't have any comparative advantage in high-tech industries. So, you know, the idea is right and not so hard to understand, but the implementation now become a bottlenecks. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to have a leadership and also to see through the whole implementation until they create quick wins in order to really mobilize the consensus and direction for the country. Yeah, okay. Mm. So I guess some countries are better at yeah. implementing this, and I think you should also read um, Sonia Hock's blog on the Havasa Industrial Park mm. um, that, that we visited uh, two, two, uh, two months ago, which is an, right. a fascinating example of how the Ethiopian government has actually uh, sort of pursued this idea yeah. and, and built the park yeah. in in about eight months, wasn't it? In Nine ten months, months. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and they can create 50,000 jobs <coughs> in about three years. Yeah, very good. Um, okay, um, there are lots of other questions and challenges, but I think I, I should now bring in uh, the audience. And um, uh, let me just 
go through the audience and uh, if you could introduce yourself and make a point or ask a question and just say who it's directing, directed to. Um, so I'll just take two or three points. Um, the gentleman here and then Sheila. Hello. I think it is on. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Carlos Oya from SOAS, University of London. Uh, I just wanted to touch on you know, your practical example of Ethiopia, also been in Hawassa a few weeks ago. And I've been following what's going on there. And I think my, my issue is, uh, on a macro level, you, your overall narrative is, is, is quite sound. You know, we, we know some of these stylized facts from, from history. The question is the contemporary uh, dynamics of global capitalism, and particularly how global production networks work today compared to 30, 40 years ago. And I think one of the big challenges that countries like Ethiopia have is precisely, I think you mentioned the word patience, is time. The examples you gave about successful economies were examples of dual track uh, trajectories with plenty of time and also foundations from the early inefficient periods which helped the development of export-oriented industries and so on. Now, some of this is missing in cases like Ethiopia, and it's true that creating an enclave like Hawassa or Bolelemi can help. Um, but a lot hinges on how governments can deal with the global production networks as a whole and the various governance structures that rule these global production networks. So, for example, in the case of Hawassa, I wonder whether the issue, which is quite different from your Huajan example, I wonder how central was for the government to actually persuade those at the top of the network, uh, PVH, or in, other, in another um, cluster, H&M, to bring factories from Asia. To what extent it is factories from Asia, where these production networks are concentrated, are the ones that are being addressed and targeted to move, to expand actually, because it's more expansion than relocation, or the right way forward is actually to go to the top, to Inditex, et cetera, and what, what are the challenges to go to that top? What is it that the governments can do to persuade those uh, big players to move? Mm -hmm. yeah. Sheila? Thank you, uh, Sheila Page, ODI. I wanted one general point and a slightly more specific one. There is a temptation for newly successful countries to believe that they have the recipe, and I couldn't help sort of hearing as you were talking about the great advantages of South-South and China, hearing of Alliance for Progress in the 60s and how the US knew more than the ex-colonial powers and therefore could develop Latin America successfully. I, I think there's a real risk that we all think we know the recipe until we don't. And there's a real risk in assuming that any area's experience can be transferred to another. Uh, the ingredients approach, I must admit, appeals to me more. But my more specific question is on the stability and how, at what point you declare that a country is developed. I mean, structural de development is structural transformation. I mean, that's just a definition. The question is how long do we have to wait before we can be sure? I mean, the, going back 100 years, the most successful countries were the Latin American Jaguars, I suppose. Uh, Argentina and Brazil were the notoriously richest countries in the world. Uh, they depended, they didn't last. Some of the successful countries at the time, the US, did. I don't think you really tackled how sustainable things like China, Ethiopia, Rwanda will be, all of which have not yet had a change in regime, 
have not yet really had a challenge to their model. And you seem to be taking a very short-term assessment of success. I think you need to look again at what makes a country repeatedly successful, repeatedly able to adjust, because there will be shocks to commodities, but also to industry, uh, like the point about automation. So a slightly deeper approach would be helpful. Mm -hmm. Okay. And good afternoon. My name is Mr. Abdi Musa. I'm from Friends of the Home Foundation, a civil society organization working for Somalia. <coughs> and, and I would like to thank, first of all, to the Fed and the UK government what they're doing for Somalia right now. <coughs> they are very much engaged uh, with Somalia right now. And I have got a question regarding development in Somalia. I know it's a different case because it has been a country, failed country for a long time. But um, instead of aid, I think the right approach for Somalia would be, even though there is security problems, an investment. And the investment, we are campaigning. We're the only organization campaigning for Somalia debt relief, 5.3 billion debt. I was outside Lancaster House when the Somali president and Somali conference was here and asking for debt relief for Somalia, and I distributed documented to 100, 100, 100 top leading world media outlets asking for debt relief for Somalia. We have got very resourceful country. A whole Somalia can benefit only the coast of Somalia, 3,300 kilometer long of coast. The military, the infrastructure, every investment we need can be found on that sea, the resource in the sea. We want that right approach saying that let's invest Somalia and let us give Somalia a debt relief so that we can attract the investment we need and we can invest our sea and we can invest our natural resources we have. But before that, we want to have a genuine, genuine debt relief for Somalia. I know the Minister of Finance is working very hard and to implement this um, staff management program and it's going to finish next year. The question I have for DFED is, what can you do to help us get full debt relief for Somalia? Okay. That this debt came from, 19, from 1970s. Right. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. So these are three questions, and then we come back to the audience. I think the, and the last question is, or it, it maybe we can also generalize it a bit more in terms of um, does this approach work in, in, in conflict-affected states, uh, fragile and conflict-affected states? Can you think about transformation in, uh, in conflict-affected states? Do you need to think about other approaches or is it tweaking? Um, so that, that, that I think is a, is a fundamental point. Uh, the second is one about sort of the resilience of the, of the, uh, the approach. How, how long-term do we need to go? Uh, automation, the window of opportunity. Uh, I know you've got a discussion on that in the book, so maybe you want to elaborate on on that, but I think we're all concerned, of course, around it. At the same time, uh, we can also be concerned about a lack of automation and a lack of technological change <laughs> so far. So <laughs> we can be concerned about uh, automation in the future. Uh, and I think uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting question around how do you deal with, with lead firms and how do you track them? And, and, and do you do that actual work So the, with, with the Chinese firms? How, how do you do that uh, in, in practice? Maybe you go to you first, and maybe you want to and then answer one or two of the questions. Uh, thank you very much for the very good questions. The first one, 
was the difference between Huajian and Hawassa. And you know, the Hawassa, as you mentioned, it started with you know, the collaboration between the Ethiopian government with PVH, which is one of the leading global buyers. And Huajian was an individual firm produced for the global markets. But here that, if you can have a PVH, which already have a global markets, and also you know, the buyer who is willing to bring its manufacturer to come, that will be the best way, because you can immediately create you know, thousands of jobs there. Like, you know, Vajian worked very hard for four years, and now five years, create 6,500 jobs. And a PVH, it came with 23 firms. And likely, they will be able to create 50,000 jobs within three years, and with a scope to create more than you know, 100,000 jobs in a few years. But PVH would not come without the success of Fajian. Because for the global buyers, they have the markets. And they are pursuing something. First, they like to have a manufacturers which can produce good with consistent qualities and uh, deliver goods timely. And uh, if you go to a developing country, certainly, and they also, you know, the cost should be low, right? If you go to a developing country today, the labor cost is low, so theoretically, the production cost should be low. But international buyer will not have the confidence because they don't know whether the manufacturer locally will be able to produce good with consistent quality and also deliver good timely. Because those kind of ability, on the one hand, depends on the manufacturer. But on the other hand, depends on whether the government are uh, capable of providing those kind of supporting infrastructure and a business environment or not. So, and, 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 and so by that, you know, the international buyers, they are very risk averse. They will not put an order to a country without a track record. And as a PVH will be willing, you know, was willing to come to Awasa only because of the success of Washington demonstrate the Ethiopian governments, they are ready to support the firms and to make them uh, uh, exporting you know, a, a basis for the global markets. So, so my advice, certainly, now Ethiopia reach a stage. They, on the one hand, certainly should continue to attract the individual firm to come, like in Avasa, in order to expand that. But they are also in a position to attract international buyers to bring their manufacturing to come. But if we go to other countries like Benin, like Nigeria, like Senegal, they don't have a track record yet. So under the kind of situation, if they talk to the international buyers, international buyers will, will never listen to them. So at this stage, it might be important to create some kind of successful examples on an individual firm basis. And once they have that, the international buyer will be you know, most likely to come. And once they come, the impact will be much larger. That's my response to the first question. Then I appreciate your warning about the recipe. To, to some extent, in the past, the Western countries always think they have a recipe for success. And I teach the students, advise the government 
to follow the recipe they consider you know, a right based on their experiences. But the experiences show they did not work. And certainly, a recipe from a developing country, we need to have a similar you know, caution. But on the other hand, I think the reason why the recipe from the high-income country did not work, because the precondition in the high-income country are very different from the condition in the developing country. And in a developing country, the, con the precondition are more similar. So under this kind of situation, the recipe will have a more reference you know, values. But certainly, you cannot just exactly copy it, because even you have a similar precondition, but you still have a lot of specific conditions which are different. And if you want to make the program to work, not only you need to know the general principles, but you also need to pay attention to the specific condition. For example, the general principle I summarize in several different ways. One is to follow the compare advantages. The other one is to look at what you have now. And based on what you have, what you can do well. And then create a condition to scale up what you can do well. I think it's a very general principle. Every country certainly has something they have. That's their endowments. And based on endowments, Certainly, they have some area which they can have competitive advantage. They can do well. But the trick is how to scale up what you can do well. And if you want to scale up what you can do well, you need to pay a lot of attention to the specific institutional arrangement and uh, social, political situation in any country. For that, you cannot simply say, well, one approach in China work, one approach in Vietnam work, then Ethiopia will work, not necessary. But I know if Ethiopia want to be competitive, they should produce something which are labor abundant, labor intensive. If they try to, like in the past, you know, they also have investment promotion. But when they say investment promotion, they always say, we do not welcome sunset industry from a country. We only want to have sunrise industry. And the best we can compete with the US. If they adopt those kind of approach, they are not based on what they have, and they cannot do well on that. And no matter how much effort, they are not going to be successful. And so I know some kind of basic principle. But how to turn that basic principle into a strategy and uh, can be implemented? That need to be country specific. So that's respond to your, your, your support, yeah, your, your questions. Then coming to if you are in a country which do not have political stability and in a conflict then certainly it will be hard because no one will want to risk their life to make investment in those areas. And I sort of hope is that certainly conflict is one stage. And once you have post-conflict, just like in Samaria today, you're not in the war every day. So you have some places, you know, social political stability were already there. And under this kind of situation, how to make this kind of transitory stability into a permanent stability. I think to create job and hope for the people will be essential. But if you want to create job and hope for the people, then follow the recommendation from my new structural economics will be, you know, will be the might be the best way. Because follow new structural economics, you can have quick wins. Just like in Ethiopia, the success of Huajin was many within one year. 
Okay. And also in Rwanda, the success of CNH was made within one year. And within one year, you have a firm which can create a thousand of jobs and export into the global market. You change the perception about the government, perception about your society, and a perception about the possibility to have a bright future in, for the young people. So that might be the best way. Achieve the political stability, and once you have stability, even it's a short windows, and then you need to run with the time to create a quick, quick wins. Once you have a quick wins, the confidence on the incumbent government will be increased. And that will have some kind of virtuous you know, uh, 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 cycle effect. But if you lose that opportunity, then conflicts may come back again, and then you may have to suffer a lot before you have that window of opportunity to come again. Okay, so being a pioneer is very, yeah. is very important um, to help. That creates quick wins and have demonstration yeah. effects. Uh, I thought those were brilliant questions, um, and I agree with much of what has been said. I think just to underline the point about international buyers, I mean, so certainly when my teams talk to international buyers, it's very, very clear that the power of demonstration and knowledge and being in country and having done it and having established that relationship with government and having the evidence is, is very, very strong. It's very powerful. Um, I would nuance it slightly that I think a lot of the companies that we talk to talk about Africa, sub-Saharan Africa also, as part of their five, six, seven year business plan actually. So there is an inevitable, caution what I say, there feels to be more of inevitability um, around companies rising interest in really thinking about Ethiopia as, as, as the gateway, if you will, to, to East Africa in particular. Um, and I think the, the question for, for us as the international community is, so what is it going to take to tip them? And how do you create, from a tipping point, a snowball effect? And how do you talk to government sensibly about that? And certainly PBH and Hawassa do all the talking. You know, we, we are following that particular lead. So yeah, I think there's something that's very potentially very important of getting this right over the next couple of years to create that tipping point and that snowball effect. Um, Shilly, to your point, I also much prefer the ingredients rather than the recipe narrative. Um, and certainly from DFID's point of view, what we say very strongly is we don't have the answers. We know what the ingredients are um, to an extent, but we don't know the recipe, and we wouldn't pretend to in many of the countries in which we work. There is something very powerful about speaking about other countries that have succeeded and using that as a point of departure for conversations with government, but I'm very empathetic to that view. Um, on the question about stability and shocks and working in conflict-affected states and so forth, I, mean, I should just say at the outset that I'm not qualified to give you an official view about what DIFID can do to support debt relief for Somalia, um, so I won't do that, um, other than to say, um, obviously, debt relief, the HIPAA initiative is something that the UK government and DFID has been deeply involved in in the past. Um, I very much agree that there is a sequence which starts with a political agreement. I would qualify, I think, a little bit what Professor Lynn said, that I think that the economics is an essential part of that political agreement, but that very quickly those quick wins, the incentives, if you will, that growth, jobs, sensible economic policies can create between competing factions are critically important. And certainly in my experience of working in the Middle East, unlocking domestic investment first 
before you start talking about international investment, has a very powerful effect on supporting a, a positively reinforcing political economy around stability. Um, but as I say, I thought those were brilliant questions and exactly the sort of challenges that this narrative, which is still quite new, I think, mm. need. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's important to have the uh, ingredients, uh, the recipe. There's a discussion on that. I think you also still need to cook as well mm. to think about uh, bringing it all to, together as well. Um, let's go to, to have a final round of, uh, of comments. I think, uh, Stephen, you had your hand up first. Stephen is also leading work uh, thinking about the relocation of economic activities in China uh, to, to other countries, uh, working together with uh, uh, Professor Lin and uh, the CNSE in this, uh, this context with, with others at ODI. So, Stephen, you go first, and then we go to the left. Thanks. <coughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, we're doing the work looking at what uh, Chinese manufacturing firms might do uh, in terms of moving to Africa, to Southeast Asia, or indeed to other parts of China, or automating. And we'll hopefully have some results uh, towards the end of the year uh, with the help of the team at CNSE. But the question that I want to raise, in a way, follows from some of the earlier questions that were raised by Carlos and Sheila. Um, and that's about the role of the domestic business class. Because the questions here uh, talked about the role of international buyers, which I absolutely agree is very important in the light manufacturing industries like shoes and, and garments and so on that we're all looking at. Without the, that foreign engagement, I won't call it investment, but engagement, it's not, the movement is not likely to happen. But what is also very important, I think, is whether that movement ultimately, and lead uh, buying firms, encouraging Chinese firms mainly to move into Ethiopia to manufacture, if it doesn't uh, enable or facilitate the emergence of a domestic business class, which might be, let's say, the Chinese entrepreneurs permanently basing themselves in their new country, but taking on the need to sustain development in that country, uh, then I think you run into some of the concerns that Sheila expressed in terms of the long-term sustainability. I mean, this, of course, has happened in China, where you've got a domestic business class, but it's also, I think, true of many other countries. Uh, where development has been successful or relatively successful, where it's not true, or where there's a still, a, I should say, rather a challenge in the work that we're doing here at ODI under the SET program in, uh, in Burma, Myanmar. Uh, one of the main issues that has to be addressed there is whether or not uh, domestic entrepreneurs in the garment industry that we've looked at very closely can make themselves internationally competitive or whether it's only the incoming foreign, uh, mainly Chinese, Korean, Singaporean firms who can be competitive. So I think it would be interesting to hear your reflections, uh, Justin, on, the, uh, on that issue. Thanks. Okay, thanks. We're going to run a little bit over time with your permission, a few minutes. Um, there, there, Casper, uh, you, you had? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Schultz from the London School of Economics. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate in development studies. I've been looking at, a, in, a, in recent months in, in Ghana and Tanzania, at industries which confirm very much to what you are looking for. Um, so agro-processing industries such as cashew processing, which are very labor-intensive and 
which have a comparative advantage if you want because they have the cashews in these countries. But they are still struggling very much. Um, they, well, they have low labor productivity. They lack, they lack the technicians. They have uh, difficulties in accessing the machinery, um, the people to maintain it. Um, very high interest rates. Um, essentially, what's happening is in a country like Ghana, which has a uh, the capacity to process all the cashews they grow in the country, 95% of, of the cashews are going to India and Vietnam um, of the raw cashew nuts. So in your model of new structural economics, what would be concrete industrial policies um, to actually help these industries to work on that comparative uh, advantage? Okay, I'm very quick. The gentleman behind you, yeah. Um, hello, I'm George Kibala, a master's student in economics at Sciences Po Paris, in Paris. And uh, my question, uh, after reading your book, Beating the Oz, I really liked it. Um, I have one question on uh, regional integration and one on political economy. The one on regional integration, in Chapter 6, you mentioned that uh, countries with uh, scarce resources shouldn't necessarily invest their scarce resources in regional uh, infrastructure because it, it should they should rather invest it in infrastructures connecting to the, them to the global market because world demand is much higher. I was just wondering to what extent you might be discounting the potential of re regional integration to spur structural transformation, especially because a lot of intra-African trade is in manufactured goods and even in inputs and also in agricultural products. And then the second question on uh, political economy is, um, it goes a bit back to what was, what's been said before, the examples of Rwanda and Ethiopia are two of um, two uh, strong ruling parties that have been in power. And uh, when you talk about what are the necessary ingredients to get quick wins, you often mention vision and clarity. And when I hear that, I, I, I think of, about a developmental coalition or a political settlement that's in place beforehand. So I wonder to what extent you may be, you may be discounting that as a precondition to those quick mm -hmm. wins you're referring to. Okay, thank you, gentlemen. My name is Emmanuel Kembe. I'm uh, from the Southern Cameroon's Development um, Front. Uh, my question is, uh, don't you think that the over-reliance of Africa, uh, of Africa on natural resources rather than restructuring their institutions is a cause for the stagnant development. Because I tend to think that um, African, most sub-Saharan African economy are still post-colonial economies relying on individuals rather than institutions. And this has caused many foreign direct investments not to succeed because they have only looked at the content and context and rather, the, rather than looking also at the connection between contemporary uh, development models and post-colonial models. Mm -hmm. Okay, the last point, uh, Alberto, and then we go back to the... Okay. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, is it on? Well, shout anyway. <laughs> Um, just one point to tie back into the regional integration argument, um, to the question actually, and going back in terms of stages of development. Um, the, the kind of structural transformation argument posits that you're moving into higher value um, uh, pr productive uh, industries, and that usually means more capital intensive, less labor intensive, or higher value per worker. Um, so that means that eventually a, a nation will go up to lower, I mean, essentially jobs 
are being displaced from one country to another. So the countries that can take advantage of this are the ones that are taking the, the lower, um, the light manufacturing industry's jobs. But what happens when you reach the last countries um, and there's no longer the, the capacity for that to be that kind of employment to be absorbed? And so in that sense, wouldn't a re more regional integration approach, including free movement of labor, be a bit more conducive to that for these countries in that sense that you can have free movement of jobs within an area which has larger demand internal markets as well, creating greater demand for these um, jobs as well. And so is that perhaps something that we need to be thinking about in terms of this approach as well? Could you pass the microphone? Sorry, I forgot. Thank you. My name is Antoinette Salah. Um, I'm an agricultural and food uh, consultant. Thank you for your presentation, both uh, Professor Lee and uh, Melinda. Uh, my first question, I have two questions for Professor Ling. One is about the narrative beyond aid and the vision and the focus of political leaders or governments. Uh, you mentioned Senegal, Benin, Ghana. I've just been in Ghana uh, last month, and I see the, 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 the preparation of the new government about lifting up Ghanaians and the Ghana, Ghanaian economy. Okay, so what my question is, what do you think about African governments embarking on the partial processing of natural resources before export? Or should there be investment on the export of finished products? Will that lead to structural transformation? The second question is um, about what will attract foreign, di foreign direct investment? Is it the cheap available labor in the African context? Or is it already the uh, agricultural processes mm -hmm. that are already in place? My second question, my question is to, uh, to Belinda. Uh, Sheila just asked, uh, referred to um, ingredients, and you answered saying that I prefer ingredients and do not know the recipe. Does that mean that the international development agencies have failed or failing the communities? Very good, thank you very much indeed. So um, we've run a little bit over already, so I'll, I'm gonna give the speakers just maybe one or two minutes each, so that means that they can't address all the individual questions, but I think it's important to get all the questions out. Uh, Justin and Melinda may stay uh, behind um, after the meeting, so I can talk to you individually as well. But maybe if you could just limit it to two minutes, uh, Justin, yeah. and, then, and then, then you as well, Melinda. Let me I'll start with Stefan's question. The goal certainly is to help domestic enterprises, entrepreneur, to grow up. But the way to do it, might be to start with foreign direct investment. And at the beginning, allow them to import all the raw material, intermediate goods. Because if you want to reach international markets, then you need to be able to deliver good with good qualities. And good quality depends on several things. One certainly is management and uh, technologies, and also good quality of intermediate products. And if you go to a low-income country, certainly they don't have high-quality intermediate inputs because in general that's a more you know, capital-intensive. And certainly they don't have the management, they don't have the technologies. And that's the reason why, although we have programs to support small and medium-sized local firms, but they never grow up. And, and so, and, but if you start with to attract foreign direct investment to come, 
At the beginning, although they import all the raw material, intermediate goods, and uh, export all their products, but gradually, they will once they reach certain scale, they will localize the production. So they are going to have upstream investment, and and once you have built up the you know supply chain domestically, then the local firm can enter easily. So that's the case in China. That's the case in Bangladesh. That also the case in Mauritius. At the beginning, almost all the export-oriented light manufacturing were produced by foreign direct investment. But once they reach certain stages, the local home can enter easily. And uh, now most of them are local firms, both in certainly China, but also in Bangladesh and also in Mauritius. Then secondly, about the regional integration. It has been a goal for a long time, a pillar in almost the you know, African unions and also in the global uh, multilateral development institution. But it has been a period for several decades, but we did not see anything happen. <coughs> the main reason is that the regional market is how large is that? Africa today, its GDP is around 2% of global GDP. That means but the patrician power in Africa is only 2% of global patrician power. The market size in Africa is only 2%. But they divide that into 54 countries. And within each country, because the infrastructure is so poor, so the market is very fragmented. If you really want to make regional integration you know, happen, how many roads, how many infrastructure you would need to, 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 to build? And the market is so small, so you cannot justify that kind of infrastructure investment. So a better way is that regional integration certainly is desirable, but that should be a long-term goal. You started with trying to reach international markets. How large international markets? U.S., 23% of global markets. European Union, 21% of global markets. China now, 17% of global markets. Japan, 7% of the global markets. You combine those four market together. It's more than two-thirds of global markets. And how to reach those kind of two-thirds global markets? Certainly, you start with some kind of spatial economic zone with good infrastructure within that spatial economic zone. You build a road to link your spatial economic zone to the port. And once your goods shipped out of your port and reach one port in any of those four markets, already can reach those kind of markets because they have good infrastructure. And by this way, it will be much easier to jumpstart the process. And, and once you have this kind of export-oriented business started with, because the global market is so huge, so it can create a thousand and thousand of jobs. For example, in the past, when you focus on the regional integrations and domestic firm, if you have a firm create 200 jobs, you think that is a big firm. But if you target global market, 2,000 jobs, 2,000 jobs just at the beginning. And now it can easily create 100,000 jobs. And so I think that in terms of job creation, public reduction, and uh, sustainable development, it should start with targeting global market instead of regional markets. And uh, once you are successful in reaching global markets, you create more resources, and you can gradually improve domestic markets. Finally. Yeah. So I answer separate question. Okay, the last one is that 
And, 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 and the, the last one is, you know, the processing of resources. I think that you want to add a value to the domestic production that is desirable. But you also need to look at whether you have the competitive advantage in those kind of activity or not. For example, in mineral, the process of mineral, first, is very capital intensive, but actually, it won't create much job. But the processing of agricultural product, it makes sense because it's more labor intensive, and also, it can create, you know, the investment will be not that large, and it create more job. So fundamentally, you need to follow the comparative advantages. Otherwise, the intention could be good, but the result can be very costly. Thank you. That's very good. Linda. I mean, firstly, look, I think it's a very interesting question. Um, my response would be, I don't think it would be the right approach for us to say, we know exactly, for all the reasons we talked about in this room today, what the recipe is in each and every country on structural transformation. Um, it would be wrong politically. It would certainly not be accurate, um, given what we know about the evidence. And I don't think it would be... Um, the most humble approach either in our relationships with a lot of the partner governments in which we work in. I think better, more nuanced is to say we have experience, we have research, we have evidence, and we have willingness and ambition, um, but we're willing to work with you to find what the right path is for the country, um, would be my response. And secondly, quickly on regional integration, I, I actually don't see them necessarily quite so mutually exclusive, so I, I, in my mind I think about the Trademark East Africa programme, which is about integrating across borders in order to help um, create a corridor for exports, which in turn helps deeper regional integration because you're tackling some of those barriers and obstacles to working across borders by definition. So I think, I mean, certainly on a recent visit to Uganda, we heard very strongly about the importance of better connections to the Mombasa port and how that could catalyse greater regional integration. But I agree that it's that international market lens that will be the stimulating factor rather than the size of domestic markets. Hmm. And maybe I'll come back to your political economy issue <coughs> again. And I talk about, now I mentioned the successful example in Ethiopia and Rwanda, and both have more authoritarian government. And whether that is a precondition for that. I think it may not. Because the most successful country in Africa, to me, is Mauritius. In the 1970s, they started with exactly the same program, project, as I described, in Ethiopia and, 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 and Rwanda. They started with setting up an export processing zone and to you know, attract foreign direct investment from Hong Kong, from Taiwan to relocate their textile government to Mauritius. And they were so successful. Currently, their per capita GDP is more than 10,000 US dollars. And by this kind of industrialization, starting with their comparative advantages. And they have a democratic society, uh, a government, right? And uh, from what I see is that every government, no matter what kind of regime, they have sufficient discretionary power. If they use those kind of discretionary power to support projects which works, can really bring dynamic change in the country. Then even, you know, they have a democratic government, the government will become stronger and stronger because if their policy works, they will be supported. And then they will pursue this kind of direction further, right? And, and even they have a change of government, 
as long as this kind of project can create job, export, revenue, growth, even if you have a change of government, the new government will continue to support this kind of project. Mm -hmm. So more important is the right ideas and use the discretionary resources and the power of the leaders to implement project which can bring quick wins. Mm -hmm. And that is more important than to be an authoritarian government or not. Yeah, we, I mean the SET program looked at some of these mm -hmm. issues around forms versus uh, functions uh, yeah. of institutions and thinking around um, uh, the importance of uh, forging a consensus around transformation in the longer term and Mauritius was been, uh, has been really good at, uh, at doing that and some of the Asian countries have done that. Um, Ethiopia and Rwanda may have done that and there's a question and challenge about, about other countries and I would also strongly sort of emphasize the issues that, that Melinda was talking about with the Trademark East Africa program. So I was uh, with, with them last week and the week before um, and also I think Rory Stewart was, uh, was at the port of uh, Dar es Salaam uh, sort of unveiling a new, new package of, of support and I think that is also regional infrastructure as we say it is basically unlocking uh, the potential of, of, of firms making it much more competitive for them to export as well and I think um, uh, I mean Mombasa is still an import port uh, so 85% I think of the total trade is, is import uh, rather than export um, but I think the plans to think around special economic zones around the, around the port now that you've reduced the, tr the trading cost I think that's a very sound sound policy and that you can also raise the productive ca capabilities and and at the moment there's some infrastructure projects going on that now is the right time to to be doing this and I know that the, the Chinese had had plans for a 1.5 billion special economic zone I think trademark East Africa has have ideas around this and I think that is that is how you can actually really transform um, e e e economies and, and productive capacities. So on that positive note, and also th thanks for the pioneering approach uh, for, uh, from Justin in Ethiopia and in other countries, but also thank you for DFID for the, for the pioneering approach on supporting economic transformation. Uh, I think it's been really, really helpful. And uh, I would uh, finally sort of recommend um, that you, uh, you get a copy of, uh, of, uh, of these books. And uh, um, I think they're available um, for purchase, I think. Um, and, um, and, and that you can all enjoy uh, reading uh, what, you, uh, what you've heard as well. So thank you very much indeed and a big applause for you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.